Welcome to Re-Review, where we watch movies from our past with a perspective from today. Your hosts are Matt, Bobby, and Austin, and we love the films from our youth, so we're taking a look back to see if they still hold up. On this episode, we're discussing Empire Records. It was released in 1995 and directed by Alan Moyle. It stars Anthony LaPaglia, Debbie Mazar, Maxwell Caulfield, Renee Zellweger, and Liv Tyler. This movie ponders what it's like to work in a record shop. But really, what is a record shop? Now, this is a fair warning. We're spoiling a 28-year-old movie, so if you haven't seen it, we will be revealing key plot points. What is a plot point? I don't know. What does it mean to work in a record store all your life? Um, This is a... Just hang out and dance and listen to music and party all day. Okay, tell me if you feel this way. This is definitely a movie made for a specific time. You know, there's a... I feel like it fits into a vibe that was going on that maybe is in the like the clerks ish and the mall rats ish type of where a bunch of teens who kind of fixate in a specific zone and shenanigans happen as a result of that. Right. Yeah, that sounds right. And I also feel like it was made for a very specific generation, maybe Gen Z. (laughs) Gen X. Gen X, you're right. It is Gen X. Yeah, I don't think Gen Z existed yet, my friend. No, Gen yeah, Z did not. Gen X. I totally skipped generations because I don't want to believe how old I am. Um, <laughs> Gen X, you're absolutely right. And just you a know, wild guess, not like I'm from that generation or anything. Thank you. Just That's what I was. This is all I was trying to knowledge of information <laughs> of the past. This is all I was aiming for. I wanted to know how to the core this movie spoke to you, Bobby. <laughs> well i existed on the periphery of this world but i did not hang out in record stores but i certainly have visited them and i know that they exist at a time so for context there used to be stores where basically like they had it was an entire store of records and tapes god forbid and various other media and magazines and books and stuff and they did have listening rooms where you can go up to the front desk or whatever, their information desk, and tell them you want to hear something, and they'll give it to you, and you can go into a listening booth and listen to it for a while. So Spotify, but physical. <laughs> yeah. And I think even until recently, some Barnes & Nobles had like a station with like a, a headphones attached to it where you can pick something that they had sampled so i mean this is the thing okay i'll be first admit i i loved music stores back in the day absolutely loved it i was big on new music tuesday i remember in high school we me and my buddies every time it was new music tuesday heading over to a record store seeing what was released from the labels that you knew about you had you couldn't you're right bobby there were places that had the listening uh booths but not everyone did so it was when you truly would buy stuff based on oh they're either on this record label that you recognize or wow that album art looks cool like Mm. you let the marketing actually get to you which just sounds insane to this day and age because now we have such access to every bit of music we just kind of play what we play uh, and figure things out from there but that sort of I, i miss the 
sound like an old man. I miss the days of going into the store and picking up a physical piece of, of media and, and even when purchasing it and bringing that thing home, you know, touching the artwork, reading through the booklet, looking at the lyrics. Oh my gosh, that stuff was glorious. And, and, uh, you know, there's so much where people listen to music now as such a passive experience instead of it being active. And really, I know this, this movie, while I would say is calling back to those times when music was an active listening experience, this nostalgia driven stuff that we do with re-review. And I know there's a lot of movies that hit those really good nostalgia notes for us. Matt, how much nostalgia did you get from this one? (laughs) Okay. So first thing I need to say up front, I really enjoyed this movie and I loved everything about it. (laughs) (laughs) So we're in agreement. Good. Uh, You know, the weird thing about it is I, I haven't seen this movie before um i thought i did but it turns out it was high fidelity instead um it it's so strange because you know i i was too young to probably be in this kind of vibe during this time period um i don't think i really came into it like really appreciating music until probably the late 90s um that's definitely when i started going into like fyes and sam goodies and everything and in my area, Hastings was the store that I'd go into mm-hmm. all the time. Um, I, you know, it's weird because going into this movie, I thought that it would be very much like a play on nostalgia in a way. And I get mm-hmm. it. It was made during the era. Um, but I didn't really get that feeling. I, like, I don't think I get the same feeling from this movie as I have from others that were like, I guess a good example of it is like, I don't, I never felt that any of these characters were that into what they like supposed to be into as much as I did like mm. watching fanboys. Mm. Like mm-hmm. that one, I felt like they're really into star Wars. They're really into what they're doing. And I never really felt that way about any of these characters. So I feel like any chance for them to play on nostalgia wasn't quite there. And I don't know if that's because they had limitations on what they could use music wise, appearance wise, you know, you know, probably didn't see nearly as many like Metallica you know, records in the back or anything like that. Or, you know, it, it didn't seem like it was really trying that as much as I felt like it would. I thought that it was going to be a huge nostalgia thing. And again, I get it. If you probably made this movie 10 years later, about 95, it probably would be all about that. Mm, it, yeah. It'd be like tons of nostalgia, but I don't think that I got that feeling watching this one. Like I didn't like dwell for the nineties while, while I was watching this. Well, there was a couple of things that got me. There was a Super NES and a Game Boy. <laughs> I was like, yes, go on. But they didn't do anything with those no. other than to tease me. Just to tease me. Um, you know, I made the comparison because it felt it, with the musical, you know, uh, uh, the the tracks that were played throughout the movie, it it felt so much to me like the team at Neversoft before they made uh, the first Tony Hawk Pro Skater. Mm really took the the vibe from this film with just crazy silliness that's happening without any i'd say congruence and any need to care for the characters that for everything they're experiencing and said well why don't we put some kick-ass music to some skateboarding and and there you go we'll make a video game it just had this weird i'll say a weird vibe about it we we could start with we we are introduced to lucas this very odd character who takes money from his boss joe nine grand gambles it in atlantic city loses all of it and that's the premise for for what is really the um 
the big company coming to take over the little guy story, right? Mm-hmm. The 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 Tower Records coming in to replace this lonely town record store. The big guys coming in because there's more money to be made from that type of thing. And I feel like that could go so many ways because you're really setting up the, hey, we're here for the little guy. And it never really did that. It was a lot of, we have a bunch of broken people working at this store, which is cool. Humans are broken. Love broken people. Um, but they never really, I, I felt like every character that we were introduced to had multiple, well, not multiple, really two sides where we were just having to accept things as they threw it at us and never really seeing anyone kind of grow. We're, we're introduced to uh, what Robin Tenney's character, Deborah. And it's it's all of a sudden just super dark. She like tried to kill herself, and then we're just like, "Oh, okay, you shaved your head, cool." And then they're like making fun of her. I'm like, "Wow, this is just some really dark shit out of nowhere." And they clearly don't care about each other, and it's sort of that element of I think we're supposed to think they all care about each other, and they try to show us that they care about each other, but I don't know that I was ever convinced that they ever cared about any of them. It seems also like. The manager, Joe, is the one that kind of holds it all together. Like, he's the one that cares about them. He's the one who, like, takes all these broken-winged birds who can't fly, like this Warren kid, and is like, oh, hey, this guy's, like, clearly unhinged. Let's, like, take him under our wing and employ him now. And Hold on. Let's talk about Warren. Okay. <laughs> I don't care what Joe's role is. I actually wrote down that Joe is this, like, old and wise guardian. Joe is a fool. Joe should have been sending these people off to jail immediately for all the shenanigans that we're pulling. He's got Warren stealing uh, what Dre CDs and doggy style, which I was like, shout out to Snoop um, (laughs) with the stuff that he was grabbing. But they do a whole bit of him running around the store and somehow or outside the store. And Lucas is like Batman moving around Mm -hmm. all the different areas like a ninja to trap this kid to run him back in the store. And okay, here's the spoiler. Dude comes back with a gun and he's like, yes, let's give you a job. What is this world? Yeah. Like, like I said, like this guy, Joe is like, maybe you get the feeling that he was once an outcast kind of guy and he found his place at a record store and he's like, Hey, look, I could save all these wounded souls who come into this record store. Just like hipster dude from the very beginning. I forget his name now. The, the dude who always wears black. Lucas. It seems like Joe's just trying to like keep his house of broken pots like all all together. What is a world where you let a broken pot take Nan Grand from you and you don't drop that pot in the trash? <laughs> well, clearly they have some stuff going on. I mean they, they do try because I mean we I think we all kinda had a problem with that as it was progressing throughout the movie. The fact that you know, he clearly wasn't taking any action. It, it felt almost like they, like he had almost kind of just kind of moved past it a couple times and then kind of came back around. Um, but the, I feel like they tried to touch on it a little bit towards the end with, you know, like uh, if he goes to jail, who's he going to call for bail? Mm-hmm. It'll be me. Mm-hmm. And there was like, yeah, he kind of essentially became like a surrogate father for him after he was basically abandoned or whatever. And so like it kind of played into that a little bit, but it's such a weird time for that to come out rather than earlier. Like, I feel Mm -hmm. like the story Bobby and the character that Bobby's talking about would have been a much more interesting thing. Remove the whole music town subplot 
and just have it be about a guy who's managing a store of broken people mm-hmm. and just focus around that and cut out like Rex or whatever his name was. Like we don't really need that storyline <laughs> and just focus on these people. And that would have been perfectly fine. I think the whole idea behind the Rex storyline, like it kind of reminded me a lot of like Goonies. Like, you know, like there's the whole situation where there's the big evil corporation that's trying to break down the soul of the, you know, the individuality and the gentrification system, Mm -hmm. you know, like, I think it's kind of, there's like a common theme in a lot of movies, like trying to play on that kind of thing. But then they didn't really play into it as much. Like it almost feel like it kind of got swept to the side until it was needed later on. Like. I would have liked a scene where either all their personal problems tied into that. I mean, towards the end, it kind of seemed like they kumbayaed, yeah. and then it just kind of turned into the David versus Goliath thing. Like, you know, you you would see those kind of themes in movies all the time, like you said. But it would very much was the driving force. Uh, I mean, dodgeball is a good example, right? Very much that what was it the uh, the underdogs gym? The underdog story. Yeah. Um, you know they. Uh, it very much was the corporation versus and but they personified it right the corporation was you know formed into ben stiller's character and then you had the underdog very much being vince vaughn here like Mm. joe was so passive for most of it that it didn't seem to really matter for a good chunk of it and then like i i can't remember what his name was the the owner the actual owner of it was it um mitchell was his name mitchell um, you know, he was kind of represented, but he was technically the owner of the record store in the first place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I know they kind of made him look like a yuppie. He came with the suit trying to talk about how bidets are the future. Um, he wasn't wrong. Yeah. I'm guessing he might, he's probably like an early investor in Toto, I guess, or something like that. So like he's, <laughs> he probably is like a multimillionaire right now. Um, but like, I feel like they could have played it. I don't know. Going through this movie, I just felt like there were different stories that they could have latched onto and made a solid story, but they were just kind of put everything in there. And Mm -hmm. so we just got like a confetti amount of story and characters with no binding aspect to it. Yeah. So I looked at some trivia of the behind the scenes stuff. And so originally the movie was supposed to take place over two days and there was like a bunch of other characters, but they cut More out characters. Like, yeah, they cut out. <laughs> they cut out like a bunch of it. So what we got was like a super chopped down version of the movie. I mean, it hit the ninety minute mark. Yeah, extra points for that. It felt Gotta like three and a half hours. Movies. This definitely was one of the longer ninety minute films. I'm not gonna lie. Yeah, I don't know if it was because it didn't feel like like the. This it didn't really feel like there was a a super clear cut three act structure. I'm trying to figure out like you know like where does the first act end? Where does the second one begin? Where does the third one begin? You know, it's like it's kind of like they where, just where, where's the plot? Going, yeah, they just kind of seem to be going about their day and dealing with issues that come up, which is fine because if you, I mean, going back to what Austin said, you look at Clerks, right? Yeah. Clerks doesn't have a massive like plot to it. It's just kind of the unfolding of a day or so in the life of these people. Right. And, you know, it's very like Seinfeld in that way, right? Like where they don't necessarily have to have, you know, this overarching story, but you have to have very interesting characters 
who are very well portrayed for that to work. And I don't really think that they had that. Like a lot of these characters, I think were a little bit more throwawayable than someone. Like, I feel like honestly, it's weird to say, but I think the most interesting character in this entire thing was probably Mark. I don't know. I, Cause he's the only the stoner. Yeah. The stoner. I feel like he's the only one I didn't hate everyone else. <laughs> I heavily disliked because it was almost like they had to, cause like he legitimately had a, a love for music. He wanted to be mm-hmm. in a band mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. and it very much was his driving character story. Right. Strangely enough, he wasn't on the stage playing a guitar at the end, which I thought was what they were going to do. But magically we got Renelle Zegweger up there singing for some mm-hmm. reason. And, yeah, that was uh, her dream to sing. Something we didn't find out till the third act, by the way. <laughs> so it was like, again, like he was a very enjoyable character. Whereas I feel like the rest of them just felt like they, like somebody wrote like three bullet points for their character and didn't go further beyond that. And well, yeah, you're, you're I, I agree with you. We, we think of, we look at Liv Tyler, right? We're introduced. She's at work early. She's studying for school. She's a smart one. She's going to Harvard. Oh, wait, by the way, she's in love with this old man named Rex. And she's going to give up herself to that old man and then regret that. Then she's going to get accosted by her her uh, teammate at the office who says, I love you out of nowhere. And you're like, what's up with you, dude? Don't do this. Please don't do this, sir. And then she ends with, I've always loved you. I just didn't realize it until you told yeah, me you loved me. I was me. so confused by <laughs> that. It's just like, what are you doing, man? I was so confused by that. But. I mean, to Liv Tyler's credit, like she really steals the screen for me. Like when she was on there, like I was like really watching it. Like she's like, like she has like a good screen presence. I think. So, so you like physically or as an actress? Yeah, because like, I mean, a- as an actress, like like. So during yeah, during like, her freakout scene, you you thought she totally sold it. Okay, maybe it must be physically then. <laughs> I mean, this is kind of the thing, even with the character Gina, who, you know, is presented as flirtatious and out of control, then they essentially just, you know, slut shamer. And then then somehow, like, we forgive you for being this way and, like, accept her back. It's like, what is wrong with all these people? And their poor friend, Deborah, who's like, I tried to kill myself, so let's do, like, a fake death for you. And we're going to talk over your dead body of how I – it was just such a weird – and Joe was there. The boss was there for these moments. Yeah. That's the other thing. Like, this was signed off on by their adult authority in their life. Yeah. I still don't know for the life of me, like who, like what was his name? Uh, the the guy with the big hair, uh, Burko. I don't even know what his deal was. He just kind of appeared midway through the movie, and then he was just part of the you cast. All the guy of a randomly carrying yeah. carrying a guitar at parts. Yeah, he just appeared, and there he was. He was part of the cast all of a sudden. <laughs> yeah, that was great. I mean, I look at it, and I'm trying to think: was this? It's 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 you know mid nineties here, and we know what we end up getting as the years kind of go on. We get the ten things I hate about you. We get can't hardly wait. You know, we we get uh, the American Pies. We get these sort of other ensemble type films that I feel like really execute a lot better the teenage angst story. And and if we go back to the eighties, what Breakfast Club things things like that mm-hmm. is it just that this kind of missed the mark on trying to follow that formula yeah i didn't i don't know if yeah. at the point in the in the mid 90s if they had 
I mean, you're right. In the 80s, they did have the formula. Breakfast Club being a great example of it. Um, yeah, I, I just, I, I don't know what they were trying to do with this, but whatever it was, they totally didn't, didn't hit it. Or at least I don't think that they hit it. Um, I think that a lot of the movies that came afterwards, I mean, I mentioned earlier that I confuse this with High Fidelity. I think that was a better movie about a record store and people in said record store than this one. Obviously it didn't have the same teenage vibe that this one mm-hmm. did, but like, I'm surprised there wasn't a jock character in this whole thing. Right. And there's a little <laughs> bit of like weirdness for me in this, I would say. And basically that they're trying to save the, the record store and they save it in the movie. But ultimately, in real life, this kind of thing was not meant to be. And so it's just kind of like looking at it like they're trying to save it. But we watching it now know that it's not going to happen. It's not savable. And I think that kind of paints it a little bit strange and dated and interesting for me how basically like they spent this whole movie trying to save the record store, but it's going to die anyway. So you want to see the story about Napster. <laughs> that was so dark. <laughs> and there went the record industry. It's gone. Yeah. Just like that. It literally is just a Napster movie and it starts with an image of empire records. <laughs> just broken. I mean, it, during that time period, it, you know, obviously in hindsight, we know that, you know, the two thousands basically killed the record store. I would have loved to mm. seen that movie, you know, a record store trying to stay alive you know, in a dying industry for the most part, but. And especially considering where we are today, where the record industry is actually viable to some extent. I mean, it isn't what it was, but it is based on that nostalgia that people buy vinyl now, right? Mm -hmm. It's, it's, it's a very odd turn in terms of the way everything works, considering how much access we have from a digital standpoint, that there's people still wanting that sort of physical element to, I guess I'll put it in quotes, own the things that we purchase, even though things don't really work like that anymore. So if I'm, th- I'm sitting here, you know, we've, I think you may be known how we feel about the film so far. What uh, what would you do if you remade this? What, what do you, how would you tackle this differently? Make likable characters, I guess. <laughs> well, okay. So I feel like one of the things they could have done, and I remember thinking it as we were watching is like, I would remove two of these characters and replace them with Wayne and Garth from Wayne's world. No. Okay. <laughs> Cause I, I like I'd this. be like, I like this. because I, 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 I feel like those characters love music and I never got that feeling from any of these characters that they love music. Now you don't have to work at a record store and love music, but if you're going to make a movie centered around a record store, I want them to love music in different ways. Mm. You're going to have all these different kinds of characters. They should all have different tastes and those kind of things should blend and clash and everything else. And maybe even have ones that are counter to what you would expect somebody to listen to. You'd have like somebody Mm. like, was it Deborah listening to Hanson or something like that? Something that just completely doesn't make any sense, but to that character it does. And then you just have it revolve around those characters. Get rid of, like I said, get rid of the plot about the whole being taken over by the corporate man or whatever, just have it be about them or even better, have it be that they're fully aware that their store is going to close down or something. Mm. And it just be the last hurrah 
of a bunch of music loving kids and a place that they love to work with their, you know, you can keep the Joe character as the mentor or whatever, just seeing the last few days of the record store existing. I'd watch that movie. So how that many- fills that fills me with warmth. Everything you just described, <laughs> I, want, I also want to watch that. Go ahead, Bobby. How many people is ideal for an ensemble piece? Like, it seems like also a lot of times in these ensembles, they have like maybe six of them, like three guys, three girls, because they're trying to have each one have a potential romantic link. Mm-hmm. I think that you there's not a number limitation as long as you have great characterization and great actors. Because I look at movies like Ocean's Eleven. Has tons of characters, mm-hmm. literally eleven sure, characters yeah. in the main crew, right. plus bad guy, plus you know Julia Roberts, plus all these other characters, and it works. It totally works mm-hmm. because they have great acting. The movie was well edited. The story, although somewhat simple, was well executed. You can do it with as many people as we see here, but each mm-hmm. of those characters have to have something that one makes them stand out, makes them worth being on the screen, and contributes somewhat to the story. And I can't say that for half these characters. Sure. I mean, again, I I really think this movie hurt from all the cuts that it made. I mean, that's really not to say at all that this could have been a three hour movie because I don't think that would have helped. I was going to say, do you want the Zack Snyder cut of this film? No, no, no. In black and white and in 4.3? No. I mean, I guess it's, (laughs) I guess all I'm saying is it would have been interesting to see like what they would have done if. It would have been from start to finish a 90 minute story as opposed to mm-hmm. a three hour story that got squished into 90 minutes. But this is this is like a cult classic, right? Doesn't this fall under that? Maybe. I mean, it's definitely like a time capsule. And I think whenever you have those kinds of movies like that fit into a very specific time period, I think that kind of thing happens. Mm-hmm. Maybe we should focus on more of these uh, very specific 90s period piece movies and see how much pain we can bring on ourselves <laughs> oh no <laughs> <laughs> and that is the reaction i was looking for <laughs> you know you would love it you absolutely know you would love it um you know i i think at this point we're gonna do our regular rod robin bobby tell us what you recommend this film for people to watch well I'm going to say if <laughs> if you're really wanting to see a movie that takes place in the 90s about a record store then this is one of the top movies that you can find that was the most political answer I think we've ever had on this podcast <laughs> it was like the kind of answer oh, I'd I'm expect sorry. from I one had, of the actors on the red carpet go away for a moment while I died in a corner <laughs> laughing okay <laughs> Matt would you recommend this film no no I wouldn't recommend this to anyone I don't I don't think there's anything anywhere in here for anyone to watch I think there's better options and better things to watch from a lot of the actors in this movie this is this is tough. I, it's it's odd, you know. We always have our reactions. A lot of things we feel very similar about, and in the way we we approach the movie watching, and you know, I think we definitely have our reasons for the things we'll fe- feel pain points on. And this is one of those films where I think I I love that nostalgia hit that we get. The whole point of re-review is we get that nostalgia hit to think back on on the things that we may have experienced. And this one just 
didn't hit those those nostalgia points in a way that make me ever say that I would want to set my eyes on this movie ever again <laughs> um so no i'm also not recommending this film for for you to go watch uh there's definitely some other 90s pieces or if you want some ensemble maybe watch oceans 11 this let's let's all feel good why don't we just go rinse us out rinse our brains and our eyes and go watch oceans 11 that's our recommendation that'll make you really happy <laughs> to, to go see that as always thank you for listening and remember We do not regret the things we have done, but those we did not do.